Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, let me get your attention real quick. I'm not going to take too much time. MyBookie.ag, promo code WCE100, gives you a 100% deposit bonus until November 1st. So go ahead and get signed up, mybookie.ag. It is the best online sports book. Two-day payouts. Honestly, it's like going to Vegas, only from your cell phone. You can do it from your cell phone. You can do it from your computer, wherever. Mybookie.ag. Put in promo code WCE100 and knock that thing out. I'm Gary Seegers. Catch me on Twitter at GaryWCE. And I'm Chris Giannini. Follow me at ChrisBGiannini. And this is the Winning Cures Everything podcast from winningcureseverything.com. Before we get started, please subscribe to the podcast, share it, and review it. We cannot stress how important those reviews are for iTunes rankings, so help us out. Those of us who love this sport live for nights like this. You are looking live at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. It's football. I've been watching it for 40 years. 40. 40 years. How about that? So here is fourth down. Can you Michigan State's Jalen wants Jackson, and he scores on the last play of the game. Are you kidding me? I bet you don't care. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh no! This is Winning Cures Everything. Now for your hosts, Gary and Chris. That's right. It is the Winning Cures Everything podcast, number 151. I will not take up your time because we got a long one today. We've got Gary Parrish coming in, so let's uh, let's go ahead and jump into this. All right, we want to welcome to the Winning Cures Everything podcast for the first time, Gary Parrish, national college basketball writer for CBSSports.com, TV personality on CBS Sports Network, and the host of the Gary Parrish Show from 4 to 6 p.m. on ESPN 92.9 in Memphis, Tennessee. GP, you just got done with your own show. I'm sure there is nothing you'd rather be doing than talking to me right now, right? Oh, it'd be talking to you or talking to somebody else or listening to somebody talk. So either way, it's basically the same the same type of deal. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So we uh, we do appreciate you coming in to do it. Uh, tell me this first. Who is in charge of planning the NBA championship parade on Bill Street? Uh, I don't know if there's one specific person, but I'd be happy to, to to take over that responsibility. I've thought it through, and I think I've got a pretty decent plan that works from a practical perspective, but also provides the symbolism that you might want with a parade route. So if we get to that point, and Jason Wexler and those guys over at FedEx Forum need me, I'm happy to uh, assist them free of charge. Absolutely. Now, we may have to end up doing one for uh, for the Tiger football team, too, but we'll we'll get to that later. <laughs> Uh, but as far as the Grizzlies go, honestly, we didn't think it was possible to keep the uh, the grit grind mantra without Zebo, Tony, VC. Uh, but this team seriously looks like they might be better with the younger guys. So it, tell me this, from your perspective, it, does it matter if the team keeps missing on first-round guys, if they keep finding guys like you know Dylan Brooks comes to mind right now? Of course it matters because – either one of two things when you get bad it's going to be because you missed on too many first round picks and if you happen to stay good like the grizzlies have for the past seven years well then the lack of of first round picks uh successful hits prevents you from being better than you actually are in other words if right now they just had rodney hood instead of jordan adams and i don't know just scowl this year or Dejounte murray instead of that draft pick that was used on wade baldwin well, they're better. Like Dejounte Murray, you know, plays for the San Antonio Spurs, and you know he just had like a sixteen point for fourteen something game the other night as a as a second year player after being a one and done guy. Scow, I watched late last night, score seventeen points for the Kings um, as a in a second year of you know after being a one and done guy. Like those are immensely talented players who were on the board when the Grizzlies drafted. The Grizzlies organization would be better with them, and so. Um, yeah, I'll never let them off the hook for being about as bad as you can be at selecting uh, at, at, at using first round draft picks 
really since Mike Conley uh, was picked back in 2007. Um, but it is true and only fair to point out that um, somehow, some way, they've managed to piece together a good to very good team for seven consecutive years. And now, even though there was some skeptics in, in the preseason, three games into this, 3-0 record, uh, you know, wins over Golden State and Houston, um, it looks like they, it looks like they're going to have a good team for eight straight years, and that's that's a lot of fun stuff. It's really amazing to me to to see a team that is so bad at draft picks that can find diamonds in the rough just out, you know, NBA wandermen. You know, I, I've never understood how they can find guy. You know, I understand Mario Chalmers was a draft pick and whatnot. I, I get that. Jamichael Green, though, you know, they find Wayne Selden, who we haven't seen a whole lot of, but he looks promising. Uh, Dylan Brooks with a second round pick. I mean, there's there's so many talented guys that they just happen to stumble upon, and I, I don't yeah, understand guy, the it, the thing. Yeah, every guy you named, uh, there's James Dennis, of course, who's in the starting lineup. I mean, um, you know, I don't really think Andrew Harrison is anything special, but you know, he's 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 somebody that um, they turned into you know, somebody who at the very least eats up minutes and and starts for them, and so. Yeah, for as bad as they've been at selecting players with first-round draft picks, they've been tremendous at identifying, you know, sort of off-the-radar talent or talent that's been given up on and turning it into something nice. You know, Zach Randolph was, you know, basically uh, Same thing. Some, something nobody wanted at the time when they got him. I can remember people actually thinking it was amazing that the Clippers found somebody to accept Zach to take to take Zach Randolph's contract. And then Zach Randolph comes to Memphis. He turns into an all-star and somebody who's going to someday have his number hanging in the Raptors. Tony Allen was just a bit player on a championship Boston team, um, turned into somebody who changed the identity of the franchise in Memphis. James Ennis, just a guy. Michael Green, just a guy. Wayne Selden, just a guy. And so um, they've been terrific at that. And that is the thing. That, oh, oh, and by the way, Marcus Saul, second-round pick. Oh, yeah. You know, now, looks, now looks like an MVP candidate. I don't know that he'll be that. I don't <laughs> think he'll be that. But it is important to remember, like, he wasn't a lottery pick or some heralded high school recruit. Uh, he was a, a fat kid at, at, at Lausanne who I can remember uh, John Calipari and his assistants wondering if they could get Powell to pay for Mark to go to University of Memphis and, and he would technically be a walk-on if he could ever, quote, help them. Not be a star, but just, like, help them. Just be a guy off the bench. Yeah, just be a guy. Like, would he be a usable walk-on? That was the question they would ask me and ask each other. And the idea that he's turned into an all-NBA guy is just incredible. So the franchise has been terrific at that, um, and it's it's what's allowed them to be what they've been for the past seven years. All right, now, before I get into more local stuff, have you seen this stuff today about Mike Leach and Texas Tech? I have not. Okay, here's the brief on it. Uh, Leach has been bashing and campaigning against Texas Tech because they they never paid him the $2.5 million they owed him for the best season in school history, that 11-2 season back in 2009. Right. He he and his supporters set up a hashtag PayCoachLeach rally outside of the Texas Tech Stadium before the Iowa State game this past weekend. He set up a website, PayCoachLeach.com. People are signing a petition for him. And today he told USA Today Sports... He has hired a team of investigators to pry into Texas Tech's administrators' personal lives. Now, have you ever seen anything this crazy, and and could something like this prevent him from moving to a bigger job from Washington State? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a reason he coaches at Washington State right now as opposed to somewhere bigger, given that he's, even though he's one of the great offensive minds and really football minds um, that we have. He's kooky as hell. He's kooky <laughs> as hell. And um, certainly, yeah, when you have this kind of stuff, because if I'm an administrator, especially an administrator that got anything in my past I'd rather people not know about, I'd be like, okay, I hire this guy, everything's going okay, and then it goes bad, and I, I think about making a change and have investigators to look into my past, try to dig up dirt on me. And no thanks, I'd, ra- I'd rather just avoid it. And so, um, yeah, like it, it can't help you long term, but he seems more interested in, in – being vindictive uh, and and getting what he believes is owed to him than anything else. And so, you know, whatever. It's probably not what I would do, but I wouldn't do a lot of the things Mike Leach does. And so, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'll, I'll grab my uh, box of popcorn and, 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 and watch it go down. Um, but as we've seen with this 
bar stool, and I don't mean to, to hijack your conversation. No, no, it's but all good. This bar, this bar stool ESPN like controversy, you know, basically Sam Ponder and Sarah Spain they come out and, and they you know criticize bar stool essentially because they said disrespectful things about women. It's 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 more complicated than that. But the the the, the basic point is, you know, how can you uh, you know, say that a woman is slutty or say joke about a woman's this or whatever. And folks started digging into their past tweets and you got Sam Ponder joking about how her, about how her dad asked her, you know, what does Jen Sturger look like? And, and Sam Ponder said, oh, she's got brown hair and big boobs, you know, sort of like <laughs> talking about women, ta- talking about a woman the same way Barstool talks about women. Exactly. And then they've got Sarah Spain doing the same thing. And it's like, yo, we've all got things, in our past that, that, or at least most of us, I guess I shouldn't speak for everybody, that we prefer that, in the, that with the benefit of hindsight, we'd rather not said, rather not tweeted, rather not put on Facebook. Um, you know, like, and, 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 and so like, I wouldn't want anybody look, hiring a private investigator to look into my past. I mean, there's no criminal stuff there, but there's certainly things that I would be embarrassed of. And so, yeah, if I were an administrator, I would be nervous if I were at Texas Tech. But even beyond that, if I were an administrator, yes, to answer your question, it would it would make me hesitant to hire Mike Leach to work for me because if things go wrong between us, is he going to start digging into my past? I don't need that. Most people don't need that. Exactly. I, I, it's why I doubt he will ever move to Nebraska, Tennessee, wherever. No, Nobody's going to do that. But I will say this. He does make college football much more entertaining. And speaking of entertaining football, you're somewhat of a Memphis football insider. You coach the uh, the team during the spring game. Uh the win over Navy was remarkable and, and honestly, to me, confusing. The Houston game was even more insane. Tell me this. From your perspective, how is Memphis able to win games this year after losing so many defensive starters? And and do you think this team can win out against the schedule remaining? I do think they can win out against the schedule remaining to the extent. Well, like, win out. Let's, let's make sure we define it properly. All right, the four games. Win out, it, yes, in the regular season. <laughs> I mean, they're going to be favored in all four of those. Um you know, I, I think the way the numbers work out, if you buy into the computer formulas, is that they will be, um, from a percentage perspective, expected to win each game, but not necessarily from a percentage expect, uh, expectation, uh, a, pers- a percentage perspective, rather, expected to win all four games. In other words, <clears throat> I think when I looked at it late last week after the Houston win, um, the computers gave them about a 28 to 30 percent chance to win all four games, but if you chop them up individually, they're supposed to win all four games. And I do think they'll win all four games. So I do think they're going to be 10 and one and playing for the American Athletic Conference championship. And wow, I mean, what, what an awesome thing for the university! But especially given where it was in the two years before Justin Fuente got here. I mean, you well, even, even the first the, two years of, uh, of Fuente of Justin Fuente, right? I mean, the, the press conference is is legendary, at least in this market. Tommy West, you oh, know, yeah. as he's getting fired, saying, hey, listen, you guys can keep hiring people and keep firing people. The next guy is going to be just like me unless you invest in the program. Like, give him give him a stick. Give him a stick to fight with. He's not, you know, the Memphis football coach doesn't get to fight fair. And people laughed. I laughed because I thought it was funny. Uh, but he was right. But it right. was true. It's and 100% true. It was true. And, uh, you know, eventually the administration over there, and, like, let's be honest, the administration had to change. You know, it's a, it's oh, a yeah. different president. A diff, it's a different president, best, a different athletic director. The best thing that ever happened to them was was Tom Bowen and David Rudd together. Like, that, that they, absolutely. They, they understand football is the front porch of, of university, football and basketball. It, right. And so they invested. And then they made back-to-back good hires, which isn't easy to do. And, and, and this is the result. So it's just a fun thing. Like, you know, I, you know. I went to the University of Memphis, and I, I can't tell you how many times in the decade after I graduated, I looked forward to football games or even or attended them. And you know, sometimes you know, D'Angelo, uh, Danny Wimprine, like that was fun stuff, I guess. But but for the most part, there was you know, Memphis football has been mostly irrelevant in this market, and yet. Um, you know, Friday night, I'm taking my kids, my wife, we're, we'll be in Liberty Bowl watching Memphis play Tulane. You know, not watching Memphis play Ole Miss or Tennessee or the type of Memphis game you might go to. You might go to no matter what. We're going to watch Memphis. You know, like yeah. the, the, the opponent happens to be too lame. We're going to watch Memphis, and uh, I'm I'm really happy for the university. Happy for Mike. Um, happy for everybody who's got a who's got a hand in it because it's 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 fun. It's been a 
it's been a fun season, and I expect it's going to be uh, even more fun once uh, once December done. rolls around. I would imagine. <laughs> All right, now you brought up Mike. <laughs> now, true or false, Mike Norvell will be the head coach of the Tigers in 2018. I don't know, um, but everybody who just assumes he's gone. You know, what you have to understand is that, and I deal with this on the basketball side, obviously more so than the, the football side, but just because you're a candidate for every job doesn't mean you're going to get any job. For instance, Greg Marshall for the past two years has been a candidate for every big job. And to be clear, he's turned some of them down. Alabama, whatever. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, but he, he but makes like, $3.3 million at, uh, or whatever it is at, at Wichita yeah. State. So and right. Norvell my makes close point, to two. So I, you know, it has to be a big job. Right. right. My larger point was this though: like there are really only two jobs that have opened in the past few years that that Greg would have taken. And I don't want to speak for Greg, but that I think Greg would have taken. One of them was a Texas job, and right. one of them was the Indiana job. And so for the past few years, every big job that opened, there's been three candidates for it: Archie Miller, Shaka Smart, and Greg Marshall. Every other job they would have turned down. But those two jobs, Texas and Indiana, open, and they're like, okay, we'll, we'll take this one. I think any of them would have taken either of those jobs. Well, Texas decided to go with Shaka. Indiana decided to go with Archie. So Greg Marshall's still the coach of Wichita State. And it doesn't mean he'll be there forever. Like, Louisville's going to be open at the end of this year, presumably. Like, maybe Greg Marshall leaves for Louisville. But, you know, like Wichita State fans have been constantly, really since the Final Four, worried about losing Greg Marshall. Well, the Final Four was in 2013. He's still there. And my point being this, if I were the athletic director at Arkansas, the athletic director at Texas A&M, the athletic director at Tennessee, the athletic director almost anywhere, uh, and I had an opening, I would seriously consider Mike Norvell. I'd probably hire Mike Norvell. But, like, you know, what if uh, – I don't Kelly know. Or, Chip Kelly. Yeah. yeah <laughs> okay. So Tennessee opens. Mike Norvell might be at Tennessee. Then they go hire Chip Kelly. So that's done. Texas A&M opens. Texas A&M might hire Mike Norvell. Oh, then, I don't know, Scott Cross takes that job. You know, like, like you might just look up and all the good jobs are gone to somebody else. Like, you finish second for every one, and then it's like, okay, you want to go to Ole Miss? Nah, I don't want to go to Ole Miss. You know, like, <laughs> I'll just stay here at Memphis, and, and uh, you know, I'll wait for the better job. Like, Shaka Smart went to the 2011 he didn't leave VCU until 2016, maybe? Yeah, I guess it everybody, was. Yeah. Okay, so that's five years. Five years after everybody assumed he's gone, he was still there. And so the same thing could happen with Mike. I don't think he'll be here five years from now. But just because he is awesome doesn't mean a job that's compelling enough for him to leave is going to be offered to him. I don't think he's the guy who just leaves for any job. You know, like, I don't think he would accept Ole Miss. If Ole Miss wanted Mike Norvell, I'd be surprised if Mike Norvell went to Ole Miss. But Tennessee, yeah, I could see that. Arkansas, definitely I could see that. Um, But I'm not certain Arkansas is going to open, and I'm not certain Tennessee is going to offer the job to him. So, uh, I know you framed framed it as true or false. I think the answer is who knows. But <laughs> I can it's an awesome problem to have. You know, it's yes. an awesome problem to have. And and um, if 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 he leaves here, he will leave the football program better than uh, better than he found it, which is amazing given that he found it in terrific condition. And um, wherever he goes, like that'll be the the, the football school I root for, um, right up there with the University of Memphis because I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of Mike. I've gotten to know him fairly well over the past couple of years um he's awesome like as, a, as an alum of the school and somebody who lives in the market i wish he'd coach memphis football forever but i know that's not a reality given his talents and uh and i i wouldn't begrudge him at all for leaving i just sort of decided i'll enjoy memphis football for as long as uh, as he's in charge of it and if he happens to leave then uh, you know this administration has made two good hires in a row i'll cross my fingers and hope they can do three all right now, you work at CBS. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you'll know the exact answer to this, but I would imagine you might have some insight. My co-host Chris and I have been going back and forth regarding why CBS chooses to show, uh, for the SEC football game of the week, Alabama, Georgia, the bigger SEC teams, even games that are basically decided before the game starts. So this right. past week we had Alabama-Tennessee when it looked like maybe Mississippi State 
and Kentucky would be a better game, or LSU Ole Miss might be better. Now, every game was a blowout, but the games are chosen, you know, way far in advance, right? Uh, or at least a week or, or two. I think I think it's two weeks in advance that yeah. they choose them. So the the idea here is rather than rather than showcasing these big teams all the time, Chris's belief is that you could showcase the smaller programs and the number of viewers won't change drastically. He doesn't believe that CBS picking Kentucky at Mississippi State last weekend would have made any financial difference over choosing Tennessee at Alabama. Why does CBS continue to only show the biggest programs in the SEC? Like, what what is the financial difference here? There's so many data points on this that they know what they're doing. I've had conversations about this. The truth is there's limits on how many times you can take Alabama, but they will take Alabama. They'll max Alabama out every year. Um, Alabama against anybody is a rating bonanza. Uh, Mississippi State, even when Mississippi State's ranked number one in the country, doesn't register nationally the way um, Alabama does. You have to remember, um, you know, ABC does regional games. Uh, CBS doesn't. Like, whatever you're watching in Memphis is what they're watching in Seattle is what they're watching in New York City. And uh, the big brands matter more than anything else. Like, and it's also true in basketball. If, if Minnesota in basketball is ranked number five in the country, and in Ohio State is a borderline NCAA tournament team. They'll show Ohio State. Yeah, for CBS's purposes, you want Ohio State instead of Minnesota. It's just these big brands matter. And so I, I know it's true with the NCAA tournament. Like, they like the Butler story. They like the VCU story. They like the George Mason story. But it's much better to have Wisconsin, Ohio State, UCLA, Indiana, big, big, well-known brands. There's built-in audiences for those that, that simply do not exist. And so, and the um, audience does will, matter. Like, what, where there is some, some carryover. They're not looking for the best football game. They're right. looking for the best, the best television rating they can possibly get. And um, the best television rating they can possibly get is going to be between brands of, 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 like, Alabama and Tennessee. That point spread was like 36 points. It was not going to be a good football game. But Alabama-Tennessee is going to do a bigger number than – anything else they could and then they could have put on it and, and what you have to understand is that they've been doing this for so long that they know alabama tennessee they don't think that alabama tennessee will do a better number than whatever else is available on the schedule they know alabama tennessee is going to do a better number than anything else that's on the schedule and that's why you watch the blowout in the middle of the afternoon that last saturday it's um it's really interesting the way all these decisions are made i'll tell you a quick story okay um two years ago I was actually in New York because I was in the studio for the NCAA tournament. And I can't remember what the early Sunday, but the way it is on NCAA tournament that, that the, the opening Sunday, um, so the round of 32, uh, a game played between two teams, winner goes to the Sweet 16. Right. The way the schedule sets up for CBS is there's an early game that tips at like noon or something, and it's on by itself. There's nothing else it's competing against. There's nothing on TNT. There's nothing on um, TBS, nothing on True TV. It's, there's one game on, and it's that game. And the game that was on, it was like UAB and somebody, I want to say. It was just like, it was just a game. And I, was, and I, asked, I remember asking one of my bosses, I was like, okay, you've got this window where there's only one game on. So any basketball fan is watching whatever, that, whatever game's on in that window. Why did you pick that game? Because it wasn't one of the better games for that Sunday. He said, what you have to understand is um, the best window on Sunday, the first Sunday of the NCAA tournament, the best window is that middle afternoon window, like the 2.30. So the 2.33 o'clock, yeah. Yeah. He said, so what we have to do, we don't care about the first window. We want to get our best product in that 2.30 window. So what's our best product? Kentucky. Kentucky was playing on that Sunday. He said, so we, we have to take Kentucky – and put them in that 2.30 slot, which means whoever happens to be at the pod with Kentucky, it doesn't matter who it is. They get that early game because you have to have both those games in the same, you know, those games have to start at a certain time. So, so, so an inferior game gets that early slot all to itself, not because it deserves it or you even prefer it, but that's the only way to get Kentucky in that, in that prime mid-afternoon Sunday slot. So that's the way they think of it. And, and, um, you know, it's why you're always going to see in the first round of the NCAA tournament, um, no matter who 
Kentucky's playing, Kentucky's on CBS. You know, like uh, oh, yeah. the, the big brands are going to be on on CBS. Kansas and, and now, Duke it, it, and it, North Carolina and, and the yeah, same. Yeah, now it's yeah. a little different now because they have to, they have to share. There's like a constant back and forth between TNT and CBS because, um, you know, it's a uh, it's it's all shared revenue and shared expenses now, but. Um, yeah, the, the priority is always to put the biggest brands on. It's not to put uh, the best games on. It's as silly, as counterintuitive as that might sound. Um, that the goal is to put the biggest brands on because the biggest brands. How about this? So we were doing a conference call preseason, actually when CBS was trying. What, like, uh, there's a place where this is for basketball purposes. CBS, ESPN, and the Big Ten Network all own Big Ten basketball games. Okay. And it's almost like a draft. Like, okay, it's like, okay, these are all the games that are available. CBS, you get to pick first. What do you want? Uh, okay, ESPN, now you get the next two picks. What do you want? And they really do. It's like a, it's like a fantasy it's, draft. It's all the games for the entire season. All the, all, the, all the Big Ten Conference games for the entire season. Wow. What do you want? And so what you'll find out is, you know, so my boss is, he's picking my brain. Okay, who's the best team in the league? I said, Michigan State. Like, get Michigan State as many times as you can. They're going to be a top five team. They've got probably the national player of the year in Miles Bridges. You want you want Michigan State. And so he's like, okay, who's the second best team? Uh, maybe Purdue or Minnesota or Northwestern. And so we got <laughs> to a point where it was like, take Indiana at home against good teams even though Indiana's not supposed to be good, because it's Indiana. Yeah. It's a big brand. You're better off having Indiana against Purdue at Indiana than you are Purdue, Minnesota, anywhere, because Indiana's a big brand, and Purdue and Minnesota are just like, whatever. Well, it's part like, of the reason why like Ohio State last year was on Sunday CBS games and basketball yeah, pretty frequently. Exactly right. And, yeah, and they were terrible. Because a terrible Ohio State team will get a better television number than a good Minnesota team, than a good Northwestern team, than a good Purdue team. It's just the way it is. And they've been doing this for so long, they understand that. And so, um, uh, you know, they, 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 that, that's the motivation behind it. I hope that makes sense. I know it's a long answer for the oh, no, no, for no, that's, a, a question, but, that's but perfect. The, that, that, is the, that is what they, they actually have, like, all the data. They can tell you basically what any big brand does when 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 matched with another big brand in certain situations, and um, you know the data doesn't fail them. They they they're not just all like off the cuff. Oh, I guess we'll go with Alabama Tennessee this weekend. They they know what they're doing. That's and that was my argument the whole time is that look the numbers do matter. It, his argument was why not try and build Kentucky football and Mississippi State football into bigger brands by having them in that prime window. I said, because it doesn't matter if it's in the prime window, those teams, more people are not going to watch them. Like, it's, right. you'll, yeah, you'll have not, some carryover, but that's it. Yeah, they're not interested in turning Kentucky and Mississippi State into anything. That's not their priority. Their priority is to, okay, we've got a 2.30 slot on Saturday. What can we put there to get the biggest number we can possibly get? If Kentucky and Mississippi State ever turn themselves into that type of brand, well, then that's awesome. Like, if Mississippi State had a Heisman Trophy winner who came back to school and they were preseason number three in the country, you would see Mississippi State on CBS a lot because then they would be a draw. Heisman Trophy winner, you know, like Lamar Jackson is now a draw for Louisville. Um, but, but short of that, they're just going to go with, with uh, the foolproof formula, which is uh, big, big brands. It's why Georgia, Florida, it would not matter if Georgia and Florida were great, good, crappy, Kind of like Florida this Georgia year. Florida is going to be on two thirty CBS <laughs> every year. Yep, every year because it's Georgia and Florida, two big brands. That's uh, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. That wins my argument. <laughs> All right, to wrap this thing up, uh, we we like to figure out more about the people we bring on for the first time. Now, the story that broke you nationally was the Albert Means to Alabama pay for play scandal. So, I, I want you to kind of give me your backstory. How how did you start covering college basketball? after breaking a college and prep football story it, because it's from one dirty sport to another. And, and how did you get your start in radio? So, um, it's funny. People sometimes ask me, do I always want to be a college basketball writer? And it's not really, you know, it's not really true. Um, I, I didn't. My goal was always to have the best job at the, wherever I worked. Well, I happened to work at the Commercial Pill. 
This was pre-Grizzlies. So the best job you could get at the commercial field outside of being a columnist was covering Tiger basketball. So I set out to get to a place where I could cover college basketball. And so when I, um, when I got out of college, I got hired at the commercial appeal as a prep writer. And, you know, you realize pretty quickly that all, although all that stuff matters in your world, like, you know, Whitehaven's playing Germantown, you know, like it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't really matter. It's not a large you're audience. Not gonna, it's not a large audience. So you're not going to blow people away just writing about football games or writing about basketball games or writing about anything unless it's like interesting, compelling, maybe even scandal-ridden stories. And so I, I realized that pretty quickly. And one of the first stories I did that like, you know, actually transcended high school sports was I went and found this eighth grader who was being recruited by basically every high school in the Memphis area, which was against all sorts of TSSAA rules, but it was happening. And the mother would talk to me about it, and the, the kid would talk to me about it, and how all these schools were pulling in in different directions. It was basically, we understand that colleges recruit high school players, but did you know high schools are recruiting middle school players? It's happening right here in the city. And the kid was Andre Allen. Huh. And um, so that was, yeah, so that was, because as crazy as it sounds with the benefit of hindsight, Andre Allen, once upon a time, was ranked as the number one 13-year-old in the United States. I mean, he was awesome. It's funny, I went back and wa- uh, read a story one time that I wrote about him uh, when he was 13 years old because he played in the 13 and under national tournament and he was, you know, at least by one service called, labeled the number one 13-year-old in the country. And so I was writing about him as a 13-year-old and I described him as a five foot seven point guard. Do you know what he was when he got to Memphis? Five foot seven point guard. He never grew. Yeah. At, at 13 years old, Andre Allen was basically the same size as he was when he played at the University of Memphis. So that story resonated, right? Number one high, number one 13 year old in America being recruited by every high school in Memphis, and that got a little bit of attention. So I started thinking along those lines, like, what can I do that's big? What can I do that resonates? What can I do that matters? And uh, so fast forward, however long you need to fast forward, and it's, I guess, New Year's. It's approaching New Year's of 2000. Of, of, of 2000 heading into the year 2001 and I only remember it because I went out to LA with uh, somebody you might know Jason D. Williams the, the yeah, piano yeah, player absolutely yeah so Jason D. and I have a, a odd relationship that we could do a whole nother podcast on <laughs> <laughs> another day but uh, we met back when I was that young and, and he took a liking to me and I, I think more than anything he took a liking to some of the girls I was hanging out with but <laughs> we uh, we became friends and I, uh, it was around Christmas, and we went to the, um, uh, oh God, what was it? Um, George Klein Christmas party at Elvis Presley's restaurant downtown. And I brought a little girl that I was dating at the time. She was an Ole Miss cheerleader, and her best friend was an Ole Miss cheerleader, and she came with us. And Jason, you know, as most guys do, he likes Ole Miss cheerleaders. And so, um, <laughs> We were there, and like it was all surreal, right? Priscilla's there, Lisa Marie's there, and we're back in the private room. Me and like a, a couple of twenty-one-year-old Ole Miss cheerleaders, Jason D, Priscilla, Lisa Marie, and so Jason was like, "Ooh, these girls are fun." He's like, "Hey, I, let's, you know, these been so this is right before Christmas, maybe a week before Christmas." So then he tells me, um, "Hey, what are you doing on Christmas Day?" I said, "I don't, I don't know. Uh, probably going to." Uh, my parents, you know, like, you're like, <laughs> like the normal rational thing to say. <laughs> yeah, he said, um, he said, well, you want to go to Monday Night Football? The Cowboys are playing in Nashville, playing the Titans, and uh, I'll call Jerry, his friend Jerry Jones from Arkansas, because Jason's from Arkansas. <laughs> he said, I'll call Jerry. I'll get us some. I'll get us some passes to the visitors' owners' box if you want to go. I said, that sounds unbelievable. He goes, yeah, just bring those two girls that were with you of at, course. The, <laughs> at the George Klein Christmas party. <laughs> I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. I said, I'll ask them. I don't know. They might have family stuff to do. But I asked them, and I said, okay, here's the deal. We'll go to Nashville, wake up on Christmas Day, you know, uh, you know, to, to kiss your moms and your dads and all that stuff. And then about midday, we'll drive up to Nashville. And it's Monday Night Football, and Jason is legitimately friends with Jerry Jones. I know that for a fact because Jason had played uh, the Cowboys Super Bowl parties. And now what Jason says is that he can get us in the owner's box. I don't know if that's true, but either way, it'll probably be fun. And so they said, okay, we're on board. So I tell Jason they're on board. And so we drive up to Nashville on Christmas Day. And 
I, uh, I, I have no idea if this is really going to happen. Because one thing about Jason is like, he'll tell the most ridiculous story that happens to be true, and then the most boring story that happens to be completely made up, and you don't really know why. It's one of his uh, personality traits that keeps me laughing. So I never know when he's telling the truth or not, BS or not. So I tell the girls, I say, listen, I, we might get there and this has all been something Jason's just made up, or it could be legitimate, but like, whatever. Worst case scenario, we'll find a bar and, and drink on Christmas night. It's all good. So sure enough, we get there and we're in the visitor's owner box with Jerry Jones. It went just as um, Jason said. And what was wild is I don't know what I envisioned a visitor's owner's box looking like. Like, I thought maybe there'd be 30 people in there, 20 people in there. I swear to God, it was Jerry Jones, his wife, Jerry Jones' son, and his fiance, Larry Lacewell, who was like an advisor to the Cowboys at the time. So those five people, plus me, Jason D., and the two Ole Miss cheerleaders. That's it. Nine of us. That was it. Right. Wow. So we did that whole night, and that was bananas. (laughs) And then we come back the next day, and I promise you I'm getting to a point in this story. So then we come back the next day. Jason loves these girls. They're a lot of fun. And uh, so he says, uh, all right, listen, I am playing a, I think he said it was Steven Spielberg's Christmas, I mean, New Year's Eve party in LA. I don't even know if it was really Spielberg's party, but it was somebody's party. He said, I'm playing a party in LA. If you guys want to go, I will get you labeled as my personal assistant. I'll get the girls labeled as my hairstylist and makeup artist, and we'll just go. Y'all can go with me. And I was like, can you really pull that off? He's like, these people are billionaires. They don't care. I said, okay. <laughs> so we went out to L.A. for like this Hollywood New Year's Eve party. You have to understand, in a span of like 10 days, me and this girl are in, and this will make sense in a minute. So in a span of 10 days, me and this girl are at, at the private room with Lisa Marie and Priscilla. Then we're in the owner's box with Jerry Jones. And now we're at, if it wasn't Steven Spielberg's party, it was somebody famous's party. Yeah, somebody with some money. Being, Yes, I do remember it being underwhelming relative to what our expectations were, but still we were in our early 20s in L.A. at a New Year's Eve party with a bunch of obviously rich and and famous people. The only thing was it was a costume party, so we all had costumes. Like when we when we went there, when we, when we when we landed, a car picked us up and took us to a costume shop that was closed because I think we flew there on a Sunday. And when we got there, there was only one other person in the store. And it was Lenny Kravitz. Like, the whole thing was stupid, all right? <laughs> so so the thing is, we got all these costumes, so you couldn't tell who was who. So, like, I might have been, like, standing next to Drew Barrymore, but I would have had no idea because she, she was in a costume. So, anyway, then we come back from L.A. My point is, when we got back from L.A., I swear to God, this girl that I'd just done these three things with in these ten days, like, left me for her ex-boyfriend. I, I, I like, genuinely <laughs> never talked to her again. <laughs> and, like, that'll really mess with your self-esteem, right? Cause, uh, like, yes. Because she, how could she dump me after that? Like, I, like in 10 days, we did those things, and, like, like, she wouldn't return my phone calls anymore. Now, subsequent to that, because the other girl, her best friend, ended up marrying one of my best friends, so we've been in the same circle. She's cool. She's happily married. I'm happily married. Everything's fine. But at the time, I was, like, all depressed. I was like, I thought I showed this girl. I thought I thought I blew her mind with these wild trips and situations that hell you blew mine. (laughs) Well, like I couldn't get her to call me back. So, like, I'm in a state of depression, basically. (laughs) Whatever, however, whatever kind of depression sets in at the age of 22, 23, that's where I was. Like questioning everything. Like if I can't keep that girl after all those things, maybe I'm meant to die alone. You know, like I'm going through that. All right, meantime, all right. I've got a boss at the Commercial Appeal who demanded his sports writers be in the office every day. Like, it's not smart. It's not where sports writers ought to be, but that's what he wanted. And so I'm in an office, bored out of my mind. Like, under normal circumstances, I might be, like, talking on the phone to that girl, you know, like, like using the hours that way. But, like, she ain't returning my calls. I ain't got nobody to talk to. There's nothing going on. There's no basketball games happening. Yeah, football I mean it's it's, Janu- it's like it's right after New Year's. There's there's no high school football. There's no, no you know kids there's are still no, out on breaking with there, Yeah, yeah. So there's no high school for me to go to to see a practice or to meet a coach. There's nothing, and so I'm really just sitting there bored out of my mind and slightly depressed. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? And at that point, I can't remember if I had heard that Albert that Albert Means had talked to the NCAA or or if I had read 
in like some small maybe message board thing or somewhere beans might have talked to the NCAA but like some uh, I, I would have been smart to document all this stuff but you have to understand this is like literally January 2001 is like a million years ago so something was in my head and I was like you know what I got nothing else to do right now um, I'm going to call around and uh, and see if I can get because I think school had just started back like maybe this was January 4th or 5th so the kids were just back in school I said, you know what, Lynn Langs, who was the Tresman High football coach, his two assistants were Daryl Montgomery and Milton Kirk. And Daryl Montgomery was at Hamilton now, Milton Kirk was at Sheffield. So I said, uh, maybe like there's something to that. It's weird that they're not working with Milton Kirk anymore. Like, the, the, like they just had the most amazing team with the most amazing prospect a year ago, and then they left him. That's sort of strange. I said, well, maybe I'll just try to get in touch with them. So this is like before everybody in the world had a cell phone. So I actually like called the school, called the office. Well, they, now hold on, they they didn't take they didn't take head coaching jobs, right? Like they just moved assistant jobs. No, right? Were, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, they were they were just assistants at other schools. And so the first person I called, I got in touch with Daryl Montgomery in Hamilton, and I just sort of asked him the basic questions. And I knew him a little bit. That's why I called him first. I didn't really know Milton Kirk. And I said, Daryl, like, hey, uh, I heard that Albert might have talked to the NCAA about you know, his recruitment. Is that true? Dad was like, I don't know anything about that. And I was like, and I asked a couple more questions, but he basically he either knew nothing or he just said he knew nothing. One of the two, but either way I got nothing from him. So then I called Sheffield high and I just remember them transferring me to the weight room because Milton Kirk was in the weight room with some football players and he answers the phone like, hello, that's coach Kirk. Yes, sir. I said, Gary Parrish, commercial. I said, I don't mean to bother you. I know you're busy. I'm going to keep you on, but uh, just, I know I'm getting it off guard maybe, and I apologize for that, but I heard that Albert Means might have talked to the NCAA. Oh, you know what? I'm telling you this wrong. It wasn't even that I'd heard Albert Means. It, it, it's that I'd heard Leonard Burris, who was another kid that played at Tresden, might have talked to the NCAA. Oh, okay. So I'm actually asking I'm actually asking about Leonard Burris. He went to Kentucky. I'm not even asking about Albert Means. And so I asked Milton Kirk about, I heard Leonard Burris might have talked to the NCAA, and he's like, uh, no, I don't think that happened. I don't know anything about that. And I'm like, okay, well, like, do you know anything about this, Matt? And eventually he says, um, but I think Albert is going to talk to the NCAA or did talk to the NCAA, something like that. He brought up Albert Meeks. And I'm like, oh. Hmm. And uh, I said, well, uh, I said, well, y- y- what would Albert what, what talk to the NCAA yeah. about? Her? Yeah, you know, I was just sort of fishing. And I just remember him laughing. And I, he goes, well, what have you heard? And I just start throwing out things because I had heard a lot of things. But you never know if it's true or not. You yeah, I mean, it's message board talk and, and all that, yeah. Yeah. And finally, I say something that makes him go bingo. Like, and he's essentially confirming, yeah, you know, this went down. So I immediately said, hey, can I come see you right now? You're going to be there for a minute? And he said, yeah. So I went to Sheffield High School, and I sat down, and I talked to him for about an hour. And he just told me the story. He said, here's the deal. Me and Lin Lang realized we could sell our meat. And we got a deal in place with Alabama pretty quickly with Logan Young, but Lane wasn't satisfied with that. He, he, Cause uh, basically whether it was 150,000 or 200,000 or whatever it was, um, like Lane threw that out there immediately. Logan Young said yes. And it was done. So he thought and that so he could Lange, get more from, from somebody else. Right. So okay. then Lane's perspective was, God, if I got him to agree to 200,000 like that, maybe I can get 250 from somebody else. So as Milton Kirk tells the story, going forward, every time a staff would come in that they thought might be willing to deal, Lang would say, I've already got a deal for $200,000, but you can have to get for two fifty because I need, I need, you know, I got to pay back this other guy or something. Like I got to be able to do whatever it was. And so he offered the deal to Mark Rick, who was the offensive coordinator at Florida state at the time. Um, uh, Arkansas was heavily involved, whole bunch of schools. Wow. So then what would happen is these schools would then leave president, go to other schools and go, you wouldn't believe what this dude over at president's doing. He's talking crazy. So Milton Kirk was always under the impression that they were going to get the money when Albert signed, which would have been in February of Albert's senior year. Well, in reality, Lang was already getting the money. Well, Milton Kirk didn't know that. So when it got time, and Lynn Lang was spending the money just as quickly as he got it like tens of thousands of dollars. It ultimately added up to around 150 or something that they could prove. And um, so when Kirk's like, okay, Albert signed with Alabama, 
where's my 50,000 or where's my 75,000 or whatever it was he was supposed to get. Lin Lang just cut him out of the deal. Just, just like, <laughs> like you're out. And so he, that's when he left, they had a falling out. So, uh, fast forward to the time we're in right now. Remember, it's just after New Year's, which means by definition, just after Christmas. Well, Albert Means had come home for Christmas holidays. This is during his freshman season in Alabama. That didn't go that well. And as Milton Kirk tells the story, Albert went to Lynn Lang's house and said, hey, coach, I need to borrow some money. I need to get my mom a Christmas present. And Lang told him, uh, I don't have any money. And so then Albert Means goes to Milton Kirk and says, coach, I need to get some money because I need to buy my mom a Christmas present. And Milton said, well, you need to go ask Coach Lang for some money. And he said, I already asked Coach Lang for some money, and he said he didn't have any. So Milton was furious, and this was just boiling. And so I happened to call him at a time where he was furious. Like, if I had called him yeah. three months earlier or three months later, it might not have worked. But totally uh, coincidence, I called him at that time when he was ready to talk. And so after that, it was just like – um you know, my editors thought I was crazy because I had all this story and they were like, whoa, we're not letting, you gotta understand too, I'm 23 years old, they don't trust me to begin with. I'm about to throw Alabama in a big story, you know, a prominent Memphis and Logan Young in a big story. So for days, they would not let me do anything. They kept moving the goalpost on me too. They said, if you can get two sources, either on or off the record, who will confirm that Lin Lang told them he had a deal in place and that he was asking for more money, then we'll go. And so you so you were having to call done. assistant coaches and whatnot, like college assistant coaches, whoever. Oh, I was calling get... Houston Nutt. I was calling <laughs> Phil Farmer. And you have to understand, this isn't like I'm, uh, you know, Pat Forty calling these guys or uh, Pete Thamel calling these guys. I was 23 year old Gary Parrish high school writer. I mean, I, like I was, I was. I'm not trying to suggest from anybody now, but I was like a kid. Nobody, nobody knew who I was. So it's like, how do I even get Phil Farmer on the phone? And yet, I'm, I'm, I'm somehow getting these people on the phone. I mean, I was just working nonstop. And so whatever my editors told me to get first, like, you got to get this many of this, I got it. Then they were like, okay, but now we need two of these, and one's got to be on the record. Okay, cool, got that. They just kept, and they kept pushing and saying, no, 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 no. One more thing, two more things. We still don't know. We're still not sure. So, all right, so, so tell me no. this. Let me, let me interrupt you uh-huh. for two seconds, all right? So sure. Chris, my co-host, and I have – have gone back and forth this Ole Miss case that's been going on now. The mm-hmm. we we have been covering this and we've gotten I feel like more sources and whatnot than than the Clarion Ledger, the Oxford Eagle, uh, you know the uh, the uh, Daily Journal down in Tupelo, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, partly because and we've been told this by uh, Andrew Beaton at the Wall Street Journal and and all these people that the papers in Mississippi do not want to get in on a scandal about a school in Mississippi because they can lose advertisers, they can lose all this different stuff. Was something like this going on with Alabama as far as the commercial deal goes? No, but, I mean, listen, Logan Young, you know, Memphis is the type of town, and you know this, where all the rich people know each other. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, like all the rich people know each other somehow. You know, like, uh, like if you know somebody who's wealthy in Memphis and you know somebody else who's wealthy in Memphis, they probably know each other. And so, like, Logan Young, like, knew people at the Commercial Appeal. He was a prominent member. And, like, it wasn't just, like, some – they didn't care about Lin Lang. They cared about Logan Young, you know. And so they kept making it difficult for me. Like, everything they told me I needed to do to get the story initially, I did, and they still weren't going to let me run it. Well, it gets to a point where Milton Kirk tells me that they're going to wake up tomorrow and drive to Alabama, and Albert's going to withdraw from school. And so when he withdraws from school – then it becomes um, huge. You know, well, and they're going to say, why is he leaving? And Milton Kirk clearly ain't hesitant to tell people why he's leaving. I said, so we're going to lose the story. And so I tell that to my editor. And uh, we have a meeting with the main editor of the whole paper, a guy named Angus McCarran, who I maybe met when they hired me, but after that have no dealing with whatsoever. Like this guy, he doesn't know me at all. And so I, you know, I have to sit down with him and he's an intimidating guy anyway. And I remember I'm 23 years old. So I walk him through the same story. Like I've got Houston nut on the record and Houston nut has said, Phil Fulmer is like, I remember one of the things Houston nut told me is like Houston. I had, there was a, this is a crazy scene. If you can visualize it, I'm, I've got Houston nut on one phone and Phil Fulmer on the other phone at the exact same time. 
And I've got Houston, I'm going back on the phone. I've got Houston Nutt, and Houston Nutt is telling me, I am willing to, to tell you off the record that, yes, I talked to the NCAA about Albert Means recruitment, and, yes, I told them this. He said, and Phil Fulmer was there with me, and Phil Fulmer told him the same thing. I said, but I got Phil Fulmer on the phone, and he won't confirm anything. He said, I, and, and he said, I'm telling you, Phil Fulmer was in the room, too. Phil Fulmer was at the same place as me. So I go back to Coach Fulmer. I'm like, Coach Fulmer, um, listen, I'm being told that you talked to the NCAA on this day. It was about our means. This is what you told him. He said, I can't, I can't get into it at all. Go back to Houston Nutt. Houston Nutt says, you can't use me unless you use Bill Fulmer. Good Lord. So I go back to Fulmer. <laughs> I, I, got a, I said, Coach Fulmer, I've got another SEC coach who's saying he's willing to let me use this information if you'll do it. And I'm not going to use, I'm not going to quote you, but I just need to use your name. He said, you're not using my name. I go back to Houston Nutt. Houston Nutt said, to hell with it. You can use my, if you use his name, you can use my name. I'm fine with it. I said, okay. I go back to Phil Fulmer. I said, coach, that's all I need. So I didn't need Fulmer anymore. I had Houston Nutt putting Fulmer in the room. So, like, I, I'm walking my energy through these things. I got Houston Nutt saying this. I got Phil Fulmer not saying anything, but Houston Nutt saying Phil Fulmer this. I've got Fitzhugh, who's a former Arkansas assistant. He's on the record saying he was approached about money. There was a Michigan State assistant, who I don't even remember his name, uh, but he was on the record saying he's been approached about money. Two high school coaches in Memphis, one in the East, one somewhere else, were saying that other college coaches told them that they had been presented with offers from them. I, got, I lined it all up. Not to mention, I've got Milton Kirk, somebody who was in on the negotiations, on the record, saying these things. And the editor looked right at me, and he said, um, he said, do you believe this story? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you realize this is your career? And I said, yes, sir. He said, if we get this wrong, it's going to look bad for the commercial appeal, but we're still going to have a commercial appeal. If you get this wrong, you still won't be at the commercial appeal. Like, this is your career. Are yeah, you no, nobody will this? hire you after this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd be the 23-year-old who, like, tried to say Alabama cheated to get a big-time player, and then I was wrong. I said, do you understand that? I said, yes, sir. He said, okay, let's go. And I said, yes, sir. And uh, so we went and wrote the story. And if you ever go back and look at the initial story, it's interesting. It, the word, the name Logan Young is not in it at all because that is where they drew a line. They said, we're not going to name Logan Young. I said, so what, we're supposed to say an Alabama booster? They said, yep, an Alabama booster. Which, which in hindsight was wrong, but that's how protective they wanted to be of, of Logan Young. And the way we were able to enter Logan Young in the story is because when I said Alabama booster, everybody assumed it was Logan Young. And so the camera, television camera, Channel 3, Channel 5, they all went to Logan Young. And Logan Young denied that he did it. But once he publicly denied that he'd do it, I could say a Memphis booster um, allegedly paid X amount of dollars to get Albert Means to go to Alabama. Prominent uh, Memphian and Alabama booster, Logan Young, has been publicly denied that he's the booster. So we could insert his name there because he inserted himself to the story. But his name's not in the initial story. And so from that, you know, one of the things I learned a long time ago is that once you get some people talking on the record, it's, it's much easier to get more people talking on the record because they don't feel like they're the ones out there by themselves. So after that, the story, like, you know, the follow-up was something, the follow-up was something. And then eventually, because it was such a hot-button issue in the South, rich white man buying poor black kid, um, you know, the TBI got involved and the U.S. Attorney's Office got involved. And once they had subpoena power, I mean, it was game, set, match. And it led to the convictions, federal convictions of three people, Logan Young, Lynn Lang, Milton Kirk. It got, I think, two different programs, both Kentucky and Alabama, put on probation. The football staff at Alabama got fired. Football staff at Kentucky got fired. Football staff at Georgia got fired. Uh, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a massive, massive story. And I can't even imagine what it, what it would be like in 2017 with social media and all that. I mean, oh, imagine yeah. somebody writing that story right now about Nick Saban. I mean, it was like, it, it, was a, it was a big, big deal. And so from that, and boy, this is a long way to answer this question. <laughs> but from that, um, I got labeled as like this young, aggressive, bulldog, sports investigative reporter. The truth is, I was just depressed and didn't have anything to do. The girl I thought I was in love with wouldn't answer my phone call. And you got lucky like, with an I, assistant that, that wanted to talk yeah, I got at the lucky time. With an assistant, right. So um, I end up uh, getting, uh, like, the New York Daily News contacts me. 
and they say, hey, we're starting a sports investigative team. Like it's ultimately, it was going to be a two-person investigative team. It is ultimately the ones that the team that busted Mark McGuire and for performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah. And so um, they contact me, and they ask me if I'm interested in talking to them about this. Now, obviously, I'm like 24 years old, New York Daily News. You have to understand, this is pre-Facebook. This is pre-everything. So you might see the byline Gary Parrish. You don't know what I look like. You can't just Google me and find out where, what year I graduated college, anything like that. So it's funny, now that I'm in New York every week during the winter, um, I'll never forget, I, I had lunch with the sports editor at the New York Daily News, uh, a woman, at, at the time, her name was Terry Thompson. She was a sports editor at the time. And I had uh, lunch with her at a place called 57 Rue. It's on 57th Street in, Midtown, in, in, in Manhattan. I, I stay on 57th Street every uh, every time I'm in New York now. I stay at 57 and 7th. <laughs> so I, I, I see that restaurant every week. You know, it's just wild. Like I was sitting there with the – so I walk in the restaurant and I, I sort of I, – I see her. And so I walk up and introduce myself, and she goes, how old are you? I said, 24. She said, oh, my God. She had no idea how old I was. <laughs> so it's like, what? What the? Like, we got this kid. I don't know what's with a kid. Okay, she was, and so she leveled with us. She was like, we don't have anybody, literally nobody on staff your age. And um, so it was like, she was skeptical. She was like, very skeptical of my age. But we had lunch, and we talked, and whatever. And so... Afterwards, um, I, I, I get out of there, and, and my wife calls me, and she says, um, how'd it go? And I said, you know what? I think I'm too young for the job. She's like, oh, no. Why, why do you think that? I'm like, because she basically said I'm too young for the job. <laughs> my wife said, okay. And, I, and she said, so what do you think? I said, I think they're going to offer me the job. She's like, even though you're too young? I said, yep. I said, I think it went that well. I think I think she has no interest when she sat down with me hiring a 24-year-old. I bet you they offer me the job. It just I felt like I hit it out of the park. And so uh, my wife was just kind of silent. She didn't say anything. I, like you would, I would, I expect her to be excited. Like, oh, we're we're two young kids from Mississippi, and we're getting ready to move to New York City. Yeah. Like, wow. There was none of that. And I was like, what's wrong? Literally, same day she found out she was pregnant. Oh, good lord. And, <laughs> And she wanted to be down here and, with her parents and everything else, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. her best friend's her mom, you know? Oh, yeah. She, she didn't tell me what to do, but I recognized I know how this is going to go. Because, because, like, fast forward a few weeks, they actually did offer me the job. And I already had laid out what my first assignment was going to be. Like, at the time, the Mets and Yankees both. Yankees were in old Yankee Stadium. Mets were in Shea Stadium. And they were both looking at publicly financing new stadiums, which is now City Field and the Yankee Stadium. And they wanted me to go investigate, like how other publicly funded stadiums, taxpayer funded stadiums worked. So they were like, okay, you're gonna go to Arlington and look at the Rangers Stadium for a week, figure that out. Then you're gonna go here, then you're gonna go there. So the way this is gonna set up is I'm gonna go to, I'm move to New York with my young wife and at this point, I, I should re like I might have been twenty five at this point. My wife was twenty one, something like that. Yeah, but we were young. And uh, I'm moving to New York. My wife's going to be pregnant. I'm going to be, and you'll be, be on the road for like. The, yeah, you'll be traveling oh, no, I'm, nonstop. I'm not, yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm not there. And then I'm going to come home, and my wife's going to be moved back to Mississippi or Memphis. And then I'm gonna, and then I'm going to be stuck in New York, and I'm going to end up like sending child support payments south, yeah. and never seeing my kid. And I was just like, that's just as I'll regret I, that's a disaster and I knew that I really thought that's the way this is going to go down because my wife you know she's 20, she's a kid she didn't belong in New York by herself right and right. so I decided I was going to turn the job down but I went to the commercial appeal and um, I told them I had the offer from the New York Daily News I said but I will stay if you make me the Tiger basketball beat writer and, because I was still a prep writer at this point. I think I was a prep writer slash backup University of Memphis writer. So I would be the second football guy and the second basketball guy. But I wasn't the primary beat guy. And, and you um, wanted the primary job. Yeah. Who, who, so was the head coach, turn, who, who was the head coach at this point? John Calipari. Oh, this was right when, when uh, Calipari got there, right? Yeah, this would have been this would have been like 2002. You know, okay. Yeah. Like so that. he got yeah. to what? Oh, like two thousand, two thousand one. 
Yeah, it would have been, yeah. Yeah, my son was born in 2003, and okay. I was the primary beat writer then. Okay. And so when we found out we were pregnant, this would have been like summer 2002. So it was John Calipari uh, at that time. And uh, so it was about a year and a half after initially breaking the Albert Mean story, and and John Calipari's the coach. Zach McMillan is the beat writer, and luckily Zach, because he just had a child, like didn't want to be on that beat writer grind anymore. So it wasn't like he wanted off the beat, but he didn't mind being off the beat. And so I told the commercial pill, "You tell me I'm the Tiger basketball beat writer full time, and I will walk away from the New York Daily News." And then maybe the Tiger basketball beat writer full time. Like so, how did I become a beat writer? That's the. the 80,000 minute version of it. Um, I got lucky with an investigative story, got offered a job from the New York Daily News and leveraged it into becoming the Tiger basketball beat writer. And then from there, not only because I was the Memphis beat writer, but because I was the John Calipari beat writer, the people at CBS paid more attention to me than they otherwise would have. And then I was, you know, I think four years after that, I was able to land the, the CBS gig. And now I've been there geez 11 years i've been at cbs 11 years so well that's that's, that's what i was going to say like john calipari was was maybe if not for albert means calipari might be the best thing that ever happened to your career oh i acknowledge that because <laughs> you know it's one thing to just write about memphis it's another thing to write about john calipari there's always an audience for john calipari so any you know in the in the beat writer circle anytime i would um you know meet people they'd be like oh you're the calipari beat writer you know, like that's that you had eyeballs on you. So, um, just like right now, I know all the Kentucky beat writers because oh, I read yeah. about John Calipari, and so and so yeah, that helped me at least get in the conversation with him. So okay. I wasn't supposed to get that job. It, it, was, yeah. it was me, a guy from the Washington Post, a guy from the New York Times, and a guy from Fox Sports. We were the four finalists for the job. So it's New York Times, Washington Post, Fox Sports, Commercial Appeal, like like <laughs> one, like one of these like I don't. And um, same deal. I told my wife I remember telling her I was like I don't uh, I don't uh, my resume doesn't I'm like my resume was fine, but like I'm from the Commercial Appeal. It's much easier if you're at CBS to hire the guy from the New York Times and Washington Post. It just sounds better. And so I told my wife that. She said, "So what do you think?" And I said, uh, "I think I'm gonna get the job." And ultimately, I did. But it's funny in that interview with CBS. First question, literally the first question the boss asked me. He said, um, "He said I don't mean to be disrespectful, um, but let me ask you this." I said, "Sure." He said, "If you're so good, why are you still at the commercial pill?" And my answer was, <laughs> I, I told him the story. I was I interviewed for the New York Daily News. Got out of the interview, and my wife called and said she was pregnant. I didn't want to. I, that was not the time for me to move. If there, now is the time for me to move, and I'm happy to move. But the reason I'm still at the commercial pill, um, I got my wife pregnant. Like, you know, when you know, at the same time that I was getting ready to move to the New York Daily News, and that answer like really resonated with them, and so uh, here I am, all these years later. There you go, there you go. All right, well, look, it, it, the next podcast we do, I'm gonna have to get you on and talk about uh, about how your radio career got started. So I, I would imagine oh, we're gonna yeah. have Verno yeah. in and, and all that stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that's interesting too. Trust me. Like, what's funny is I, and and. Uh, I'll, I'll be quick with this, but like I graduated college in 1999. I'm 40 years old now. And when I was in college, you know, there was, you say, okay, I want to be a journalist. They say, okay, what kind of journalist? You want to be in TV? You want to be in radio? You want to be a newspaper? Pick one. I picked newspaper. And, um, and now you have really to do no all precedent. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like I always tell people like that, the idea that I was asked to pick is insane because now you'd never make a person pick because if you're good at any one of them, you're going to be asked to do all of them. Yes. And so what's funny is all these years later, nearly 20 years later, I, um, my main job, you know, according to my contract, is television. My second main job is radio. My least, like, my, the, the smallest portion of my money comes from writing. So it's just my career has been turned completely backwards. Um, I never envisioned any of this. All I ever wanted to do, honestly, is write for the commercial appeal. I never dreamed of being on radio. I never dreamed of being on TV. I, like it just wasn't even thought of as being realistic. And yet, um, it's just sort of an, ex uh, I guess, a pretty decent tell of how your life takes all these strange turns, and you're not always in complete control of it, and you you don't always predict it either. 
I absolutely love it. All right, he is Gary Parrish from CBSSports.com, host of the Gary Parrish Show, 4 to 6 on ESPN 92.9 FM in Memphis. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Gary Parrish CBS. GP, you're the best, brother. And so I, I appreciate you coming on for, for so damn long. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to keep you forever, but I, I love the no, story. I say this all the time. Whenever I'm on a guest on some like podcast, because I know like we're not running up against a hard break or anything, mm-hmm. um, you never keep me. If I'm <laughs> if I'm here for a long time, it's always my fault. Always my fault. So so let me apologize to you. I didn't mean to keep hey, you here this long. No, this was absolutely fantastic. So I, you mind if we get you back uh, once? I guess well. You're going to be in New York around college basketball season a lot, so uh, I'll try and get you in for that. Whenever you need, hey, whenever you need me, I'm here. That's perfect for me. All right, man, we appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. All right, buddy, I'll see you. All right, be good, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye. It's time for the rundown. Remember, check out winningcureseverything.com. You can give us a like on Facebook, facebook.com slash winningcureseverything. You can follow us on Twitter, at winningcures. You can follow myself, at GaryWCE. You follow me at Chris B. Giannini, C-H-R-I-S-B-G-I-A-N-N-I-N-I. You can also email the show, that's winningcureseverything at gmail.com. And we now have a voicemail line. That number is 551 226 9899. If you want to call and bash us for talking bad about your favorite team or praise us or just tell us about how awesome your team is doing, leave us a voicemail. That number again is 551 226 9899, and we may toss it on the show. Thank you for supporting this show, and until next time, have a good one, guys. Hey, don't forget, subscribe to the Winning Cures Everything podcast on iTunes and make sure you leave a review. For every 25 written five-star reviews we get on iTunes, we are donating to St. Jude's Children's Hospital and LeBonner's Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. So subscribe and review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and all your favorite podcast apps. Remember, the Winning Cures Everything podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.